Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded March 8th, 2023. While March 20th marks the 20th anniversary of America's second invasion of Iraq, despite the tens of millions of people across the globe coming into the streets to hold at bay the dogs of George Bush's generational war, Operation Iraqi Freedom's shock and awe, called Blitzkrieg in another era, was launched. We all know what happened and the failure of the people to stop the slaughter then and in Afghanistan in 2001 seemed to be the end of hope for the peace movement. But the flame for a world without war didn't die and has in fact recently been spotted flickering in the capitals of Europe, Canada, and even in Washington, D.C. Ken Stone is an executive member of both the Syria Support Movement International and Hamilton Coalition to Stop the Wars. Ken Stone in the first half. And far from fulfilling its mandate to first be an agent opposing war in the world, the United Nations' repeated failures in that seminal mission are now manifest in its endeavoring the opposite, the promotion of economic sanctions and military intervention. At least the recently released group of experts on human rights on Nicaragua's report leaves little else to conclude. Dan Kovalik is a lawyer, educator, labor, peace and justice activist, democracy defender, journalist, author and filmmaker. His book titles include Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture, The Plot 2 series on American efforts to undermine the governments and economies of Iran, Venezuela, Russia and the world generally, and No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. His latest is the recently released Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and and resistance. Dan Kovalik and the latest chapter in the hybrid war against Nicaragua in the second half. But first, Ken Stone and the smoldering desire for peace. Well, welcome back to the show, Ken. My pleasure, Chris. Anytime. Well, well, Ken, now last week marked the beginning of the end the siege campaign for Syria. Uh, What's at issue here? What's at issue here is... uh getting earthquake relief to the Syrian people who are affected by the massive earthquake. It's been a few weeks, but the problem is that in most of Syria, of the affected areas of Syria, such as Aleppo and Latakia, big cities, uh, no Western earthquake relief is reaching that area and the affected people because of Canadian U.S. sanctions on Syria. So even though the U.S. says that it was lifting the uh, lifting sanctions temporarily for six months for humanitarian reasons. And Canada says we are, we've never disallowed humanitarian aid to Syria. The fact is you cannot send aid uh, to Syria unless there are financial transactions involved. And no American, U.S. or European bank will touch uh, a transaction uh, of any magnitude to uh, the uh, areas controlled by the government of Syria. The, that means that uh, unless it's, you go through something like Western Union for a thousand, two thousand bucks for a personal uh, donation to a, you know, your own family or somebody you know in Syria, nothing of Western origin, no aid is getting into places like Aleppo and Latakia. Now, aid is getting in to one part of Syria. And that part of Syria is the northeast corner of Syria, which is the Idlib governorate, Idlib province, which is under the control of uh, the Syrian affiliate of Al-Qaeda. So uh, we have this weird and terrible situation where aid goes into 
the northeast corner of Syria via Turkey, and the Syrian government even allowed a couple of extra openings, entry points, for the aid to go into Idlib to help the people who, who were suffering from the earthquake there. But the aid that goes in is handed over to Al-Qaeda, in other words, terrorists. And these terrorists uh, you distribute the aid as they see fit. Of course, they keep most of the aid themselves, as we've seen throughout this long 12-year war in Syria. The Whatever aid has gone through in the past to these Al-Qaeda affiliates, they keep most of it for their own fighters, and they often auction off uh, or try and sell it, the rest, to the people. So aid is getting in to Al-Qaeda, but for the from the West, but not to the people in uh, the, the government-controlled areas of Syria, such as Latakia and Aleppo. And on top of all that, just yesterday or the day before, the Israeli Air Force attacked. They attacked the runways at Aleppo International Airport, uh, putting them out of commission and thereby preventing uh, relief flights from landing in Aleppo. I call this sadistic because the Israelis know exactly what they're doing and they're trying, they don't care uh, how many people, ordinary Syrians suffer from the sanctions, which by the way, have reduced Syrians to about two, three hours of electricity a day. They, have, they, they don't have enough heating oil to uh, heat their homes. And they, you might have to line up for a day or two to be able to fill up your car at the gas pump. So it's a, a real, and people are unemployed. Uh, the, the currency has been devalued. This is all because of the U.S. regime change war in Syria, which the Canadian government since uh, Harper and followed up by Trudeau have been, have been supporting. And the reason that the Syrians don't have oil is because the eastern third of Syria is currently occupied by the United States of America. They have a number of military bases there, and this happened in about 2017, if I'm not mistaken. And Trump said, yes, we're there to take the oil. We're there to hold on to the oil. It's not U.S. oil. It's not owned by the U.S. And nobody invited the U.S. in. But they're, they're sitting on the oil, and they're plundering it. And they're also plundering the wheat resources of that part of the country, which is the most fertile part of the country. So Syrians in Damascus, Aleppo and Latakia have no oil and it's hard to pay for pay for bread while the U.S. is sitting on the eastern third of Syria. And just this week, U.S. top general Mark Milley paid a visit to one of those illegal U.S. military bases in Syria. And he says that this this occupation is going to continue. If you want my opinion of why why he did that, I can tell you. Well, I know that there's been uh, some outrage expressed in Syria. They call his visit illegal. I don't know the legal ins and outs of it. I mean, other than the fact that the American presence in in the country is illegal anyway. But yeah, go ahead, Ken. Well, the U.S. is in the in uh, um, the eastern third of Syria. It's occupying it for two reasons. One is to deny the Syrian government, the legitimate government of Syria and Damascus, the um, revenues uh, from the oil, from the petroleum uh, and the wheat resources, which would enable Syria to rebuild itself after 12 years of a failed regime change war. That's reason one. Reason two is the U.S. 
uh, has said. U.S. officials have been quoted publicly saying that they're sitting on the eastern third of Syria to use it as a bargaining chip in the final uh, settlement over the end of the war in Syria. In other words, the U.S. wants to be able to dictate terms to the Syrian government once the uh, war is over. Well, I wonder, too, if it doesn't have something to do with Iraq. I said off the top that this is the 20th anniversary of the American invasion. People may be surprised to learn that America still has a garrison, a military garrison within Syria. It was announced just this past week that that garrison would stay in place, much as Milley said that this will stay in place in Syria. He said the same of the, um, the I think it was uh, 2,000 American soldiers, but uh, don't quote me on the numbers, but they too would stay stay put in Iraq as well. So I, I don't know that maybe eastern Syria, which abuts the, uh, Iraq, might be a part of their um, the American hope to reinforce its uh, garrison should it need to. Yes, well, uh, f- first of all, the U.S. is there remains in Syria and Iraq on the pretext of fighting ISIS. And I probably don't have to tell your listeners, but just in case, I will say that ISIS from the very beginning was a U.S. asset. They created it in order to try and overthrow the government of Syria, uh, the government of Damascus, and, and fracture the country along confessional lines. That failed. But uh, the, the other purpose ISIS served is that the, it gives the U.S. a pretext to remain on the, uh, on the lie that the U.S. is fighting terrorism in Syria and, and Iraq. Actually, the U.S., we know very well from statements that, from diplomatic cables released by uh, WikiLeaks and statements made by Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, and Joe Biden himself, that the U.S. and its allies, including Saudi Arabia and Israel, financed, uh, trained, uh, supported, armed ISIS, and uh, they have done so for a number of, since about 2014 or 2015. And you'll note that ISIS never attacks U.S. or Israeli installations. It only attacks Syrian installations. And uh, the uh, U.S. and Israel never attack ISIS positions. It's up to the Syrian government, supported by its Iranian and Hezbollah and Russian allies to do that. So it's been a complete fraud, this whole ISIS operation. And it's been, as I say, a reason for the U.S. to maintain an illegal occupation in Syria, because they haven't been invited, and to maintain its uh, position in Iraq, where they were originally invited, but three years ago, after Uh, Donald Trump publicly ordered the assassination of General Soleimani and uh, his counterpart in Iraq in a a drone strike just outside of uh, Baghdad airport where Soleimani was on a mission of peace at the invitation of the Iraqi prime minister and he was to meet with Uh, the Saudi Arabian uh, diplomatic representatives, they were trying to arrange a peace. So since the just days after that, the Iraqi parliament passed a resolution calling on the U.S. to get out. That resolution was not a what they call a binding resolution, but it, you know, it received unanimous support in the Iraqi parliament 
and the uh, U.S. government has just decided to ignore it. So the U.S. government is remaining in Iraq uh, against the wishes, the clear wishes of the people expressed by the parliament, and they are remaining in Syria as well. So that's why the, uh, the, these demonstrations that you started off about are taking place. Uh, this is the first time I can ever remember, except for, of course, the embargo on Cuba, that people have taken to the streets in so many countries. Actually, last Saturday, in 13 countries of the world, Canada, the U.S., Germany, Jordan, many other countries, to demonstrate for the end of sanctions on Syria. And uh, the demonstrations were in of different sizes in different places, but they are the group that's uh, coordinating this international action is calling for yet another day of international actions on Saturday, March 18th. And there will be one in, uh, in Canada. It'll be either in Mississauga or in Toronto. There might be one in Montreal as well. So Canada, Canadians are taking part in this international movement against sanctions. And it's long overdue because sanctions are an act of war. And they often kill more people than bullets. If you remember the sanctions on Iraq between the two Gulf Wars that killed half a million people, you might recall that Madeleine Albright was interviewed much later. She was the former U.S. Secretary of State who ordered these sanctions. They killed half a million children. And on TV, she said it was worth it. So these sanctions are a cruel and unjust means of waging war, which only one body in the world can order. And that body is the United Nations Security Council. It's the only body in the world that can order international sanctions because they're an act of war. And the sanctions on Syria that were not approved by the UN Security Council. So they are illegal sanctions. Yeah, well, speaking of illegality now, they, uh, I'm reading a report from uh, France uh, 24. They quote uh, Agence France Press. Uh, the transport minister of uh, Syria, Suleiman Khalil, saying of the Aleppo airport attack, he says that since the earthquake a month ago, more than 80 aid flights have landed at Aleppo airport. Aleppo was one of the hardest hit cities by the earthquake, and it was one of the most, the hardest hit cities of the war as well. I can't even imagine there's uh, two bricks standing on top of each other after all of this. Uh, on top of that, though, the airport was functional, 80 flights in a month's time. So you're looking at almost three flights a day of aid coming from Iran and other countries that aren't afraid to break uh, the sanctions that the West has ordered. And then the Israeli Air Force attacks. He mentions, does uh, the minister, that this is a, a double crime. It, it, it's a, a crime to blow up a civilian airport in any instance, but to do so in the condition that things are now in that area, following the earthquake and the, the long war that Israel has played a very active role in, uh, is uh, makes this a crime uh, a, a doubly so. Well, I have a couple of things to say about that, if you don't mind. The, the first one is that this is a reckless act by, uh, and illegal, as you've already said, by the Israelis, because it might very well pr provoke a reprisal attack on some Israeli installation or ship or uh, embassy somewhere in the world. And it could cause a spiraling circle of violence 
In other words, that, the, the reckless Israeli attack endangers all the people in the Middle East because who knows what could happen as a result of it. And the second thing I want to say about that is crickets. That's what we got in Canada and the U.S. and the Western world. It is crickets in the media, crickets from the governments in the West. Not one of them, to my knowledge, um, has said anything about the Israeli attack on the uh, Aleppo International Airport. So what they're doing, as usual, is enabling the Israel to carry on its rogue behavior in the world. Well, and this isn't the first time the Israeli Air Force has been used to bomb Syria. It's been a, a regular two or three times a week, I think, uh, event that's gone on. And it's funny, when you were talking about ISIS, uh, in the now Israeli-occupied Golan Heights, uh, newly occupied during this war uh, against Assad, that there was an instance a couple of few years ago now where uh, Israeli ho uh, field hospitals were treating wounded. I, I'm not sure if they were ISIS members or but some or some affiliate of theirs, but th it was captured on tape, and there there was no denying that they were actually treating the terrorists that they in America were sworn to defeat. They were uh, transferring wounded al-Nusra fighters from the occupied Golan Heights into Israel to hospitals there. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu visited them publicly. And it was on TV and in all the newspapers that the Syria was helping al-Nusra fight the government in Damascus. They would have... Yes, Israel. Yeah, Israel's fighting. Um, uh, Israel is helping. Israel would prefer, they said, uh, to have al-Nusra in Damascus than President Assad. Yeah, though that must have been a moment of great embarrassment for the Americans. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking today with Ken Stone. Ken's an executive member of both the Syria Support Movement International and Hamilton Coalition to Stop the Wars. We're talking a little bit about Syria first. Uh, and uh, you said a couple of things, Ken, that I, I want to clarify. If I, for example, am Syrian living in Canada, is it still possible for me to send um, money via Western Union or, or another means to my relatives there without falling afoul of Canada's sanctioned can uh, re uh, regime against the country? Um, as I understand it, in the U.S., uh, Western Union has been allowing transfers of up to $2,000 a day from uh, individuals in uh, the U.S. to individuals uh, in Syria. And I, the last thing I heard was that people in Syrians in uh, Canada were trying to see if Western Union would do it here. And so far, no luck. People are using informal networks to get um, aid to Syria. For example, the Syrian community in Mississauga collected tents and uh, and uh, sleeping bags, a whole warehouse full of them. They packaged them up. They sent them by the Jordanian airlines that uh, took it for, for free, I think, and took it to Jordan. And then they brought it across the border into Syria. And people I know, other people I know in Canada um, are using friends in Lebanon or groups in Lebanon uh, to uh, funnel um, financial contributions into Syria. Um, I don't have the the information at my fingertips for you right now. But if anybody is interested in finding out a, a way to send money to Syria from Canada, they can uh, 
they can write to the coalition at HCSW, Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, HCSW at Kojiko.ca. How do you spell Kojiko, Ken? C-O-G-E-C-O dot C-A. Dot C-A. Yeah, well, I guess what I was wondering is if they're running a risk of having their bank accounts seized by the Canadian government, people that do, as you described. Um, I don't I don't think that's a risk. What the problem is, the real problem that the Syrian Canadian community is concerned about is the fact that the Canadian government broke off diplomatic relations with Syria and they closed the Syrian embassy in Ottawa, which means that Syrians have no access to their birth certificates, their driver's license, their educational certificates. They can't get a transcript. They can't uh, communicate with any government departments in, in Syria. So it, it, they're, they're isolated from their families and it causes them a lot of stress and grief. Uh, and one of the things they keep demanding at these uh, demonstrations is for Canada to reopen the Syrian embassy in Ottawa. Well, Ken, in the United States, I'm just reading uh, Aaron Maté is on uh, Twitter talking about a motion in the Congress down there uh, to lift the sanctions, and it was defeated. And he says that uh, uh, after the earthquake, every single House Democrat, including the, the squad, the so-called progressive wing, voted to reject the lifting of U.S. sanctions on Syria, even while the top U.N. expert humanitarian right. expert says that these are these sanctions and this is in a report from November of last year say that these are absolutely suffocating sanctions and they are crimes against humanity essentially that was Elena Duhan D O U H A N and she wrote a magnificent report uh which has been ignored in the west the the, the media now you uh can you wrote uh, you listened to, you did something that I, I stopped doing a very long time ago, and that was listened to The Current, the radio program on <laughs> the CBC. And if uh, only our listeners could see your, or hear your eyes rule as I can. Uh, but you talked, uh, you wrote a letter to Matt Galloway, the uh, host of that program, in talking about uh, his interview with Dr. Al Qasim or Qasim. Uh, who was delivering aid to Syria. Do you want to uh, go over that? Yes, um, it's a particularly uh, obnoxious example of Canadian hypocrisy. Dr. Al-Qassam is a doctor in, in the Hamilton and Oakville area, and uh, he works for the Canadian government, or he gets money for a, an org his organization, which is whose acronym, his initials are UOSSM. I forget what it stands for, but you can Google it. And what it is, is a medical organization that works exclusively and has worked only exclusively in areas controlled by the terrorists in Syria since 2014. So what Mr. Dr. Al-Qassam does is he collects medical supplies and money and resources from the Canadian government, gets, gets them into uh, Turkey and takes them across the border into Idlib. In 2016, uh, Dr. Sam was uh, in, in Aleppo, uh, while half of Aleppo was occupied by the terrorists. And when there was a, uh, while the liberation of Aleppo was going on, Dr. Sam came here to Hamilton, Ontario, to uh, participate in a protest organized by 
people, Syrian opposition people here. That's Hamilton City Hall. We went there and we handed out flyers and talked to people and tried to show them what was really going on. And he was saying that the, there was a bloodbath going on in Aleppo and that the Syrian government was killing everybody in sight in East Aleppo. It was all a lie. And the people that they had demonstrating were Syrian refugee children. They, pick, they went through the Syrian community here in Hamilton. They picked up about 80 children. They dressed them all up in, in uh, white sheets with uh, bloody handprints on them. Well, they weren't real blood, but they were paint, red paint handprints. And that, that was their demonstration against the liberation of Aleppo. Uh, and he is the guy who Matt Galloway interviewed. And what I asked uh, Matt Galloway to do was to interview me or somebody else uh, in the uh, Syrian community or somebody, somebody in, the, uh, in the peace movement to give the other side of the story, saying that why sanctions uh, have to be lifted on Syria as explained by Dr. Alina Duhan, the UN official uh, rapporteur on coercive economic measures, specifically on Syria, because as you said, they are suffocating the people, they are starving the people, and I imagine that they're killing the people too because they're not getting medical resources. Uh, when they do operations in Syrian hospitals, they have to use uh, the, their uh, personal cell phones for lighting because there's no electricity. I mean, how bad does it have to get before the uh, Canadian government shows a little bit of humanity. Well, I can't say that I'm stunned. I, I, I'm not surprised, but I, I, maybe I'm numbed by the way Canadians, their lack of imagination in trying to assess what's going on in other places in the world uh, with no that have been bombed back to the Stone Age or at least the pre-electricity age and how they can't seem to understand what it's like when the power goes out here, just imagine what, what it's like for you when you lose power in a winter storm or whatnot for a couple of few hours. What you saw, Can you imagine having that every day and not to mention all the emergency services and so forth? You say in, a, in your open letter to uh, Matt Galloway, and I'll quote you, if you would like to offer your listeners a broader picture of the deadly effects of the earthquake in Syria, which are compounded by Canada's illegal sanctions on that country, I'd be pleased to sit for an interview with you. Did Matt respond? In one word? No. <laughs> well, that wasn't the word I thought you were going to say, so I don't have to use my, my bleep machine. Yeah, well, I, I, how about, uh, I mean, I well, I guess it's a rhetorical question, but the, the way that the media generally has been in this country. But Ken, we're, we're out of time for this segment. I'm going to be talking with Dan Kovac about Nicaragua and another place that Canada has onerous sanctions. Are the sanctions Canada has against Nicaragua, do you know, can illegal as well? Or have they been uh, sanctified by the United Nations? They have not been sanctified by the United Nations. They are illegal. Nicaragua is among, last count, uh, 21 countries that are being sanctioned by, by Canada in the world. And most of them are countries, poor countries in the global south, and about a third of those countries are countries in Africa in the, where mostly people of color live and they live in a very poor condition. So we are basically kicking the marginalized people of the world while they're down. That's what wow. Canada is doing with these sanctions. 
Well, the rule of law, and as ever, the law is meant to restrain the poor, not the rich. Uh, we'll break off then, and I'll come back with Dan Kovalik, but uh, Ken and I are going to do an extended version of this that you can find at the website, gorilla-radio.com. Thanks, Ken. My pleasure. Well, I got I to gotta think that we're not alone. I'm sitting in my house watching all this happen and I, I've, I've arrived to a point where I just can't keep my mouth shut anymore. Guerrilla Radio, you're not alone. And welcome back to Guerrilla Radio. Well, far from fulfilling its mandate to first be an agent opposing war in the world, the United Nations' repeated failure in that seminal mission are now manifest in its endeavoring the opposite, the promotion of economic sanctions and military intervention. At least the recently released Group of Experts on Human Rights on Nicaragua report leaves little else to conclude Dan Kovalik is a lawyer, educator, labor, peace, and justice activist, democracy defender, journalist, author, and filmmaker. His book titles include Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture, the plot two series on American efforts to undermine the government and economies of Iran, Venezuela, Russia, and let's face it, the world generally, and No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to advance economic and strategic interests. His latest is the recently released Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance, which, quote, explores the pernicious nature of U.S. engagement with Nicaragua from the mid-19th century to the present in pursuit of control and domination rather than in defense of democracy. Welcome back to the program, Dan. Thanks for having me, Chris. Well, it's always my pleasure, of course. Now, Dan, uh, uh, first of all, congratulations on the release of Nicaragua, a history of U.S. intervention and resistance. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, well, Dan, I use the term hybrid war, uh, and I take that from a comment by Ben Norton, who, who writes, uh, Nicaragua's real crime is defeating the U.S.-backed coup in 2018. He goes on to say this bogus UN report is part of the hybrid war against the country. Dan, you and I have talked in the past about your documentary film, Nicaragua, the April Crisis and Beyond. For those missing that program, perhaps, or needing reminding, what was the April Crisis? Yeah, so this was essentially a violent insurrection uh, that was supported by the United States, uh, in particular by the National Endowment for Democracy, sent millions of dollars to various opposition groups, which culminated in this violent uprising in, uh, beginning in April of 2018, in which over 200 Nicaraguans were killed, millions of dollars of destruction to public buildings and other property um, resulted, and the economy was greatly uh, undermined as well during this period, which lasted between April and July of 2018. During that time, during those several months, the country was really brought to its knees. Um, these insurrectionist groups set up these roadblocks known as tranques throughout various cities in Nicaragua, 
of thousands of these were set up. They prevented economic activity and trade, but also they were used to harass people. When people tried to cross, they were harassed. They were at times physically assaulted, at times raped, and at times killed. And again, Nicaragua faced this for several months, and uh, that was the crisis. Finally, the crisis was ended uh, really when uh, the historic combatants, meaning the Nicaraguans who had fought Somoza in the late uh, 1970s and the combatants who had fought the Contras in the 1980s, organized themselves and uh, basically brought down these tronches in, again, um, July of 2018. Well, this report, Dan, by the so-called group of experts, isn't the first time that I've heard these kinds of charges that they make about uh, the Ortega government that's in power in Nicaragua now. They claim uh, human rights abuses of all sorts. Uh, What's... uh, what, if anything, is new about this report as opposed to other charges that had been proven in the past to be rather spurious? Well, there's not a lot new, except this follows on the heels of the Nicaraguan government. They had um, uh, arrested over 200 of the you know, key leaders of this insurrection. Um, by the way, a lot of those people were initi- were given amnesty and freed and then rearrested uh, because they did not abide by the uh, um, uh, agreement um, giving them amnesty, which basically said they couldn't, you know, repeat their crimes against the country. Um, so the people have been rearrested and. Ultimately, in the last few weeks or so, the Nicaraguan government sent these people on an airplane to the United States and sent them into exile. And this report follows on that action by the Nicaraguan government. Well, you know, Dan, and remind me that my memory is not as good as it used to be, but when the elections preceding all of this in Nicaragua were going on, the, the Canadian government was very vociferous uh, against uh, the government in Nicaragua and intimated that they uh, that the elections would be illegitimate. They were, as I remember, um, uh, discounting the legitimacy of the election before the elections had even taken place. And I think the same was going on in the United States. Am I remembering correctly? No, that's very true. And I happen to be, by the way, an election observer uh, for the most recent presidential elections in which Danny Ortega ran against six other parties. And he, about 65% of the population voted and Ortega got something like 75% of the votes. Um, so he won with a very strong mandate. And in elections that, you know, my fellow election observers found to be free and fair, uh, there's no doubt that Ortega and the Sandinistas are very popular. And in fact, a recent poll showed uh, that Nicaragua was considered by its people, um, in, in, you know, compared to similar polls around the world, uh, the Nicaraguan people, um, 
consider their country the most peaceful in the world. Um, if I said that right, essentially, um, they had the highest percentage of people of any country saying that their country was peaceful. So uh, people feel that what the government has done has been necessary and has worked to guarantee the the safety and security of, of the Nicaraguan people. Well, I think, you know, it's not my own, only my own memory that I worry about. I, I worry about the collective memory, especially in Canada and the United States, where they feel it seems okay about uh, waging ruthless economic sanctions on a poor country to begin with, but they seem to have forgotten where Nicaragua came from. You mentioned uh, the Sandinistas, and of course, fans of The Clash may know them, but others might forget just how terrible things were in Nicaragua and why they were terrible. They were made terrible by uh, the the sponsored dictatorships uh, uh, that ruled the country ruthlessly for so many years, uh, sponsored and supported and suckered by the United States or the uh, United States and and especially the Reagan and Bush one administrations. Yeah, well, so the, yes, the United States Marines invaded Nicaragua in 1910 in order to make the country safe for U.S. capital penetration. They stayed there until uh, being uh, forced out by the uh, ragtag uh, forces of, Anasta of um, Augusto C. Sandino. But in the stead of the Marines, they left the National Guard, brutal National Guard, which the Marines organized under the leadership of, uh, of Somoza, the first uh, Somoza, Anastasio Somoza who would then become president of the country, dictator of the country in 1934. And the U.S. backed that dictatorship uh, from 1934 until finally the Somoza uh, dictatorship was overthrown by the Sandinistas in 1979. In the last year of the insurrection, 1978 to 1979, the Somoza government, with the help of the U.S., killed 50,000 of its own people, mostly through the aerial bombings of cities. This was a very brutal dictatorship. The Sandinistas overthrew them. And as soon as they overthrew them, the U.S. began organizing the former National Guardsmen into the Contras and then supported these Contra terrorists, and that's what they were, uh, to attack Nicaragua from the early 1980s up until 1990, and the Contras went on to wreck the economy, uh, to commit terrorist acts uh, by killing doctors and teachers and destroying health clinics and electrical uh, supply systems. And ultimately the Contras killed 30,000 Nicaraguans um, in, in the short decade uh, in the 1980s. And again, people, Forget this, how brutal the U.S. has treated this country and how any progress that country's made, the U.S. has intervened to throw that country backwards. And uh, again, an attempt was made in 2018 to do just that. Uh, the Nicaraguans weathered it and they've taken steps to make sure this does not happen again. And again, the people in Nicaragua are grateful for that. 
Yeah, and all this in the broader context of the dirty wars throughout Central America in that period under Reagan and and, and Bush, uh, the spirit of which, if not uh, the eff- efficacy, has continued on, I would argue, till this day from one administration to the next. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, in El Salvador alone, he had 75,000 people killed in the war that the Reagan administration waged against that country. In Guatemala, about 200,000 people were killed, mostly Mayan Indians, in what is now recognized as a genocide. Again, the U.S. uh, was behind that as well. And those countries continue to suffer the ill effects of those brutal wars. That type of violence just doesn't go away overnight. And that's the... that's what people have to understand about Nicaragua. You know, when you support these contra-type forces um, that the U.S. did in the 80s, those people don't just go away. And I mean, in fact, the Sandinistas tried to integrate them back into society. Um, you may remember that Daniel Ortega in 2006, when he was reelected after not being in office for 16 years, actually ran with the Contras as vice president. You know, so they tried to make nice with these former Contras only for those folks and those types of people to be organized again against the Nicaraguan people. You know, and finally, the Sandinistas said, we've had enough of this. We're just not going to open up our country for this type of violent intervention. Yeah. Well, if you just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Dan Kovalik. Dan is a lawyer, educator, labor, peace and justice activist, a democracy defender, journalist, author and filmmaker. His many book titles uh, are too myriad for me, even with my fast talking to go into right now. But his latest is Nicaragua, a history of U.S. intervention and resistance. Dan, who is this? Uh, We're talking around this uh, uh, group of experts on human rights on Nicaragua report from the United Nations. In my introduction, Dan, I was rather heartless with the United Nations, uh, not only their feckless attempts at uh, engendering world peace, and maybe that's unfair of me to say, but uh, also it seems now their uh, willingness to promote economic sanctions and military intervention. The United Nations has signed off, has given an imprimatur to the group of experts on human rights on Nicaragua and their report. Who are these? Who is this group? Well, I mean, generally, UN experts are, you know, they can come from various walks of life. They, they, they hold very short terms um, as experts, and they're actually, they're, they're basically not paid. They, I think they basically get a dollar, some sort of symbolic thing. And um, so they, the experts can vary widely as to who they are, what kind of real expertise they actually have, um, what kind of knowledge they actually have. Um, yeah. And in this case, they, they really decided to uh, put out a report that was in lockstep with the U.S. position on Nicaragua. And as you say, at least uh, implicitly in support of sanctioning Nicaragua, which itself Honestly, uh, the type of unilateral sanctions that the U.S. is imposing on Nicaragua are actually illegal under international law um, because they're not they do not have the imprimatur of the Security Council, which has not sanctioned Nicaragua, by the way. And the General Assembly has not sanctioned Nicaragua. So the the sanctions the U.S. has imposed uh, have no legal 
basis, and and again, in fact, run contrary to international law, which re- would require the Security Council to approve these types of sanctions. So for a group of UN experts to approve illegal sanctions seems to be a bit of a contradiction in terms there. Yeah, I know, pun intended, that the the UN resolution uh, 49-3 from last year of the human rights, the UN Human Rights Council empowers this this, uh, human rights uh, experts on Nicaragua. Um, But uh, I'm a little um, surprised that the United Nations, uh, maybe they do mention it. I've read their, their mandate in brief. I don't see any recognition of the sanctions regime or campaign that's already on Nicaragua. And I, and I wonder if uh, sending in this kind of a, a delegation, if even a delegation was sent in, it's like a group of three, by the way, this great group is three individuals, uh, to do this kind of report on a nation that's suffering sanctions illegal, as you've mentioned. Yeah, no, I, I think it sounds, it seems strange, and it does seem like, um, you know, it's evidence that, frankly, the UN in general and the Human Rights Council in particular are really held captive by the United States. Uh, the UN has become uh, very much a tool of the United States to, again, ironically subvert <laughs> and and get around um, international law. So, I'm not surprised at all that this type of report would come out because, uh, again, the U.S. has kind of managed to 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 dominate the U.N. certainly um, really since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Well, the headline of uh, in a press release from the Human Rights Council is Nicaragua crimes against humanity being committed against civilians for political reason. Uh, investigation says, which is this uh, report that we're talking about here. Um, I, I have to say that to to uh, give some semblance of fairness to this report, as risible as I think it is off the top, uh, is there anything that we can say, Dan, or that you know that could bring this kind of headline at least some sense of credibility? Well, again, or- I think... I think what they're focusing on are these folks who were arrested and then sent into exile. Um, certainly, they these are people who had a political agenda. Um, there's no question about that. But th- that's not why they were arrested in exile. They were arrested in exile for organizing uh, a violent extra-constitutional coup attempt in 2018, which devastated the country. You know, I, I've not just myself, myself and others have, you know, tried to compare this to the January 6th uprisings in the United States, right, at the at the U.S. Capitol, which people want, you know, the intellectual authors of the of those in, you know, acts to be held accountable, including by being prosecuted and sent to jail. Um, and in that situation on January 6th, first of all, is it it only happened for several hours, that insurrection. And in terms of the casualties, you're looking at at most a handful of people as opposed to the couple hundred who were killed in very violent ways in Nicaragua during the insurrection. Um, But people don't have empathy for Nicaragua's attempt to hold the people there accountable, again, for the much worse and uh, and longer 
insurrection that happened in 2018. Yeah, well, they, uh, in their verbiage, they, they don't leave much room for uh, uh, interpretation. One of these uh, three members from this expert uh, uh, group, uh, Jan Simon, says, quote, the, the Nicaraguan population lives in fear of the actions that the government itself may take against them, the objective is to eliminate by the government. The objective is to eliminate by different means any opposition in the country. They say that the abuses are widespread and systemic. Uh, they include crimes against humanity, uh, murder, imprisonment, torture, sexual violence, deportation, and politically motivated persecution. There doesn't seem to be much gray area there. Well, that, yes. I mean, uh, in, in what they say, there's no gray area. But I think that a lot of those allegations are simply not true. And again, I go back to this poll that show that Nicaraguans um, have the highest uh, percentage of people who believe their country to be a secure and peaceful country. Um, so that would go against the claim that Nicaraguans are living in fear. In fact, they're living in a lot less fear today than they were in 2018 when this insurrection was happening. Um, and again, the international community has failed to condemn the violence that was carried out uh, by these groups, these opposition groups funded by the United States. Somehow but that has just been completely ignored. But even more, well, I would not completely, Dan, because the numbers of casualties have been incorporated and laid at the feet of the government, the, the number of casualties inflicted by the resurrectionists there. So the government is made, as I understand it, is made to wear that as well. No, exactly right, right, including the 22 police officers who were killed in the summer of 2018. Somehow that's the, the Sandinista state's fault, right? I mean, if you go to Messiah, which I have, and you go to the police department there, the police barracks, you'll see uh, uh, at least 10 different photos of cops who were killed during that time. They were not killed by the Nicaraguan state, right? They were killed by these insurrections. But as you say, even they, even their ranks are now put uh, in the blame column of the Sandinistas, which just shows how ridiculous uh, this report is. Well, I I'm humble enough, Dan, to know that I'm not such a smart guy, and I realize that. And you're a pretty smart guy, but why does the UN not, when they really make a press release based on, on this research, they must know. They, they must know as much as you and I do. Yeah, well, again, and it shows that they may know, but they don't care or they they have other um intentions in mind and and that is again to simply support one narrative uh, yeah. of this story well i remember uh the uh 2018 the the video of the the rioters in the streets with their little tear gas firing mortars and and other weaponry that was uh, I'd never seen before this kind of homemade stuff uh, but it was uh, seemed ubiquitous which was caused suspicion but the way you described the 2018 and its pr precursor with the uh, um, the American uh, NGOs being involved in Nicaragua sounds a lot like Maidan in Ukraine in 2014 and before that revolution. Is this just another cookie cutter color revolution in the making that went that didn't accomplish what it hoped to? I think so. I mean, I think it has a lot of it looks a lot like that. It looks like 
a lot like Iran in 1953 when the U.S. overthrew the Prime Minister Mossadegh. It looks like a lot of the coups that the U.S. backed, um, though this one, again, went on for months. It created a huge amount of damage and a lot of casualties. And honestly, it was a small miracle that uh, the Sandinista government survived it. And, and one fact that people should know, I mean, it's very interesting early on in the, in the crisis, the Catholic Church, you know, Ortega began a, a peace dialogue uh, with various stakeholders in Nicaragua, including the Roman Catholic Church. And the first thing the Catholic Church asked was, was that the police, the Nicaraguan police, be taken off the streets because they said these were the people committing the violence. And Danny Ortega, in response to that request, said, OK. And he took the police off the streets for 50 days and they were held in their barracks. And by the way, the army never came out. The army always said this is a domestic dispute. We protect our country from foreign invaders. We're not going to deal with this. So all security forces were contained in the barracks for 50 days. And what Ortega knew would was that the people would see who was really committing the violence because the violence continued nonetheless because it was the insurrectionists committing it. And by the end of the 50 days, the population cried uncle and said, get us out of here and get these people off our streets. Yeah. Well, and that's what happened. Well, and the, and the media in the north, El Norte, there they were blind-eyed as ever. Dan, we don't have much time left, but I, I, I can't leave. I want to get to Syria now. Um, yeah, uh, yesterday or the day before, correct me, uh, the Syria War Powers Resolution came up in the American House, Resolution 21. Um, Syria, we saw the Israel bombed the Aleppo airport last night or, or early yesterday morning. This airport had received um, more than 80 um, aid uh, flights after in the wake of the huge earthquake that happened there in early February. That I don't know how damaged the airport is there, but uh, uh, I, I don't know if the UN has had anything to say about this yet either. Uh, but this Syria war powers resolution, what is it, Dan, and how did the how did it go? Well, the uh, there was put forward actually by a Republican, a uh, proposal to um, essentially end uh, the president's um, power to continue um, having troops uh, stationed in Syria. The U.S. now occupies one third of Syria and is the most oil rich part. And the U.S. in fact is plundering oil, which is a war crime on a daily basis out of Syria. Um, and that a resolution failed hugely. Um, uh, there is not much support in the Congress for ending any of these wars, unfortunately, um, including amongst Democrats. And, and the progressive wing of the Democrats, they stood firm with uh, the president. Uh, was that because this was introduced by a Republican that not a single Democrat in the House voted to uh, voted for the resolution to uh, remove American forces and influence from Syria? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, it, it's because they support Biden. I think, I mean, what is most telling is that it took a Republican to actually, you know, put the resolution forth. Uh, I don't think it was so much that it was a Republican that put a fourth that led them to vote against it, but the fact that they stand with Biden in whatever war he wants to prosecute, you know, which yeah. is completely 
a pretty sad commentary, really, on our own democratic or so-called democratic system. Well, and including Ukraine, you were um, you visited la- uh, last year Russia and Ukraine, and you were in London for the No to NATO um, confab there just recently. In our last minute or so, Dan. The peace movement you mentioned in one of your videos uh, at your uh, um, Twitter site uh, is rising in Germany and in England and Canada, in America, too. And you mentioned in Italy, where the dock workers have uh, blocked weapons supplies from their country bound for Ukraine. Uh, what's your thumbnail on the uh, what I would I've argued in my previous uh, interview as well for the position that the peace movement is ready to burgeon? I think there is life coming back. And, and in the United States, we have a big uh, peace rally scheduled for Washington, D.C. on March 18th, which I'm going to be at. Um, I think over 200 groups have sponsored that. So we're expecting big numbers. So, yeah, I'm pretty excited that I think the peace movement is back in business and uh, it's about time. Saturday, March 18th, and, that, and that's in D.C. And, the, and in other places, too, right? Yes, yes. There'll be local ones as well. Well, thanks a lot uh, for coming on and talking a little bit with us today, Dan, about your work and uh, your new book. And and again, you can find uh, Dan's uh, new... Where, where do they get your book, uh, Dan? Where do they find... You, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at your local bookstore. If they don't have it, they can order it for you. And you can also order it directly from my publisher, Clarity Press. Yeah, Clarity uh, Clarity Press does so many good things, and uh, I'm just trying to find the title of your book here. Uh, Nicaragua, Nicaragua. A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. The author is Dan Kovalik. Thanks a lot, Dan, for coming on, and I want to also thank Ken Stone from the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War. And uh, that's all I've got for this week until the next time. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks, Chris. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. Get together whenever they think it's necessary. They have turned our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning parts of the planet into a cemetery. What you gonna do? Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. What you gonna do? We hounded the Ayatollah religiously. Bombed Libya and killed Gaddafi's son hideously. We turned our back on our allies, the Panamanians, and saw Ali North selling guns to the Iranians. Watch Gorbachev slaughtering the Lithuanians. We better warn the Amish, they may bomb the Pennsylvanians. Military and the monetary. Get together whenever they think it's necessary. They have turned our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning the planet into a cemetery. They got folks out there working for war. Two, three, four. Make a whole lot of money, start a little trouble, it's war. Turn this planet in the north and south, it's a war Start a few rumors over there, make money with a war Say it to yourself I believe I we got the work for nobody. peace Peace ain't gonna See, be free, we got the work for peace nobody. You believe in peace, really gotta go to work They got folks out there Yeah.